2: united
1: states it's a worldwide phenomenon
2: that ufo podcast is powered by zencaster zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts zencaster is a modern web-based solution for high quality audio and video podcast production with a full suite of professional tools, Zencastr allows podcasters to quickly and seamlessly record their guests remotely and produce their podcasts in studio quality. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Support for That UFO Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who are the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offer precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over two million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer just for you listeners: twenty percent off and free worldwide shipping with the code AndyUFO at Manscaped.com. That's promo code andyufo if not for you it could be for a family member for the man in your life or someone you just want to get an amazing gift for imagine shaving with a sleek well-designed and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom all the while listening to dan and i talk about the latest uap news so remember folks get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code andyufo at manscaped.com Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast from the archives. This is part two of the roundtable originally aired last year with Gary Voorhees, Kevin Day and Patrick Hughes. This one was originally broadcast around August 25th, 2020, and was a really interesting talk. The second part focuses on listener questions, including could the pilots and radar have misidentified the craft? We looked at the UAP task force and what sort of power it would have. So that's an interesting talk, given the report came out, what, 10 months later after this episode. We look at threat and intent and why did they allow themselves to be seen? And a whole lot more on top of that as well, folks. Enjoy and look out for more from the archive soon. (laughs) Yeah, I get those. (laughs) Right, so coming back from that message folks we had a ton of listener questions sent over thank you very much and i've narrowed it down to about four or five pages worth of questions some of the other stuff has already been answered within the body of the interview so thank you very much um uh, and folks uh, some of the names or twitter names and whatnot i'm just going to go through and ask the questions as well because some of you sent really similar questions into so if you think it's your question it probably is let's go with that First question, can the guys discuss the Navy's CEC radar and how it's impossible to misidentify a plane? I think, PJ, you want to take that one, don't you?
0: First of all, CEC is not a radar. It stands for Cooperative cooperative Engagement Capability. And the layman, unclassified version, it is a real-time data link between a bunch of different ships and airplanes. You know it doesn't have its own information. It pulls information from all the sensors on other ships and here and there. Um, so it, it's not something you can spoof. It's the, the glorious thing about it. And it's available on the internet to look up is that it takes all the stuff it's connected to and makes one giant picture. So you're unlikely to fool it. But the big thing is the CC is not a radar. It, to add if, there, Gary?
1: Yeah, it, it also has systems on it that are already written into it that if data doesn't correlate with what it thinks it should be, um, it will not use it. So like, say one of the links was, uh, you know, like one of the links coming from one of the ships was just corrupted. Like, you know, say there was something wrong with the CEC and it was sending a bunch of bad information. It would just drop that link it doesn't need that link to make the picture. It just needs all of the other links that it has, you know, basically any one link it's not dependent on. So it's cool. It's, it's collaborating the information amongst everything connected to it. And that's how it's making its picture. Um, so with CEC, it can't be spoofed because it's not, spoof- it's not something to spoof. It's just, a, it's a data link system. It's not a, um, it's not a radar. <laughs>
2: No, oh, no, thanks for that. Though so, next question: biggest philosophical question has to be intent. Why, with such superior capabilities, have these craft allowed themselves to be seen?
1: Well, I think uh, starting with with our invention of radar, they'd never intended us to see them. Um, I think it's just uh, as our capabilities become more and more advanced, we're able to. We're just able to see them. It's kind of like, uh, you know before we invented AM and FM radio, we couldn't transmit over those frequencies. We didn't even know they existed, you know? So once we are able to, then it just brings us into another realm of existence. So
2: uh, so to expand on that then, why when Commander Fravor, in, I'll, I'll use the word engaged, that might be wrong, at one of these craft, and as he commented, he came down towards it and it came up towards him. Why didn't this thing just shoot off at that point?
1: Well, um, probably for the same reason, if, you know, I got into a fight with a kid, you know, if I got into an actual fist fight with a kid, I wouldn't hurt him. You know, I wouldn't even, you know, I would just do everything I could to avoid them because of how much damage I could do to that child. You know, what I mean, what, well, why, if they are, you know, actually malevolent or they're not if they are non-hostile, that would explain why they don't do anything to us. If it's reverse-engineered technology or if it's our technology and it's our people, that would also explain why they didn't do anything. So, you know, it bodes, bodes okay either way. But, yeah, it, it's, it's a question that definitely is staying in the philosoph- philosophical realm because I don't think there's a, a good solid answer for it until we understand and identify the actual objects themselves.
2: So uh, here's one for PJ. One of the listeners has mentioned that uh, the UAP task force will apparently have more power than ATIP did. Um. But do you think that these programs could just get closed out of things like Lou was back in the ATIP days potentially, or do you think they're going to be allowed to actually do some digging and and make any real progress?
0: I don't doubt that there's going to be stuff they don't have access to. It's, it's the way the government works it's the way the military works i know a secret you don't you don't need to know the secret that i know so i'm not going to tell you you know it's i may have a top secret clearance but that doesn't mean i can know every top secret item in the government you know just because the uap task force is given a top secret clearance for access to top secret information doesn't mean they're going to get to know everything you know say a cruiser i'm just going to use the princeton sees this again that uap task force isn't going to know the 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 princeton saw the objects again unless somebody tells them you know unless there's a reporting process and the government and military is too big of a bureaucracy to get all that stuff to uh to work the way they really want it to
2: just me with that, Gaddy.
1: Yeah, the only thing I'd really add to that is the f- simple fact that if, I mean, just go to a, a simple FOIA request. Uh, unless you specifically ask exactly in the right exact words and terminology for what you want from them, they'll give you bullshit back. So, unless they know the exact questions to ask, they may never get the right information. Uh, one of the listeners wanted to know, what level of
2: disclosure or admission would it take for, for these events to make it into school textbooks?
3: Wow, that's a freaking awesome question. Um, I think, oddly, I think uh, UAPX Expedition. When we go out there and we record these things and some really smart people stand up and say, this is what I saw and here's my proof. I don't think there will be any option at that point. It'll have to be acknowledged. That's the like whole point it, of our mission, I
2: think. You are filing that then under the scientific, you know, side of things, aren't you? That this is this is science, this is science fact. Here's the data, here's the experiments we've done, and here's the results off the back of it. So it's, it's irrefutable proof then, yeah.
3: Yep, exactly. And uh and over to you to tell us what we saw. You know, that's the whole idea. We're gonna gather all this data and then give it to some other really smart people to tell us what we just saw. Yeah. We'll make the school books, we will make the history books and i think that deep down inside i think it it will it, it is going to change it end up changing the world i really do
2: i think for some of us it has changed the world and even for guys like you it's affected your life so so yeah i think we're we're starting to see that kind of the the cracks appearing in, in, in a really good way um gary the next question was for you um how certain are you that the object you saw through the big eyes were the ones being tracked on radar and did you see any movement
1: um, I'm a hundred percent certain that the objects that I saw were, uh, cause as far as out we were and that the uh, range and bearing that they were at there, they, it could have, couldn't have been anything else. Um, timing was perfect. I mean, we're only talking a difference of minutes from the time I go from combat to up to the big eyes. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot of time. So, um, not unless every single time the same exact object just happened to be there at the same elevation and bearing every single time I went to go look at it, you know, and granted even half the time we, we were too far away from them. So to see them half the time. So uh, when I did get to see them and uh, you know, anytime they did move, it depends on the angle that we were at versus where they were at and which way, what vector that they went at. So if they were going, you know uh, you know, parallel with us, I could see them move, but if they were going, you know, toward us, then, you know, other than see them get a little bit brighter or, or just disappear. I, that was basically all I could see through the big eyes. Um, it wasn't until I saw the video itself that I really got the, the good eyeball full of exactly what this thing I've been, I've been looking at through the big eyes really looked like. So, you know, it's, uh, I, to me, I'm a hundred percent certain the things I saw through the big eyes were exactly what we were tracking.
2: It was, it was funny, though, that the way different people would think about these incidents because Jeremy McGowan mentioned uh, when I interviewed him that until he spoke to Lou Elizondo about the incident that had happened years before in the middle of the desert in Jordan, he thought it was one object in the sky that was repeating the same cycle. And apparently, it wasn't until Luis Elizondo asked him, Is there any chance that these were multiple objects just following the same path that he actually had the idea that, ah, oh, maybe these were multiple? contacts that I was seeing and I mean it could have been one object repeating but then again it could have been more so but you're quite certain that it was it was more than likely multiple yeah
1: yeah because we, we were tracking them at the same time um, generally if it was one one object and it was just disappearing and then reappearing because of how fast it was going and basically we were just getting a, a hit every you know fifth time on them and that's why it seemed like it was just disappearing It it would we wouldn't be tracking solid objects across the board, you know And being able to see the path of these objects because you remember when we first started tracking them They weren't going fast at all. Matter of fact, they were doing the opposite of that They were only doing a hundred knots, which is ridiculously slow for a flying object So, I mean that in itself was just odd. So, I mean, they were not going Amazingly fast. We were able to track them. They were, you know, luckily for us very solid objects uh, even after we decided that they couldn't be real and then tried to see if there was anything wrong with our systems, there was nothing wrong with our systems so when we brought them all back up, sure enough they were all still there so it was uh it, it was definitely a hundred percent a you know real solid multiple objects uh, you know there's no way that I think you know i I am not. I have no understanding of anything that would be capable of faking the tracks that we saw at the time in 2004. Uh, I know people have brought up other systems, but just looking how those systems work, there's, there's no way they could have spoofed our system. Even
2: um, even a gigantic flock of really cold seagulls or birds
1: would not. Even have. if they were hypersonic seagulls shitting fucking rockets, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> they wouldn't have fucking <laughs> fake, hey. got gotten through our system.
0: I'm just starting to believe the hypersonic seagull theory. So let's. I leave tell that you what, the world.
1: first time I see a fucking hypersonic seagull, <laughs> I'd be happy. Well, Wait, I've, I've also. Hey, Andy, I've what also the
3: skill sets. One of, the, one of the skill sets for operation specialists is exactly what you're asking about, being able to correlate what we see on radar with what the the lookouts, in this case, Gary and I saw visually with our eyeballs. So, you know, one of my skills has been doing it for 18 years at the time, and I'm absolutely 110% positive that what I saw on radar was exactly the object I saw through the big eyes. And When I saw it, it was actually pretty boring and I was disappointed and went back down to combat. I
1: was disappointed, but I was excited I found it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, some of the watchstanders actually saw these things maneuver with their eyes, some of the bridge watchstanders and stuff. Sean Cahill being one of them. Our buddy Sean Cahill.
2: Yeah, I spoke to Sean Cahill about that back in the second episode. Yeah.
1: Not that I don't know, don't love having Patrick here, but I was actually really looking forward to, to actually doing an interview with him. He's uh, I've had a couple of conversations with him privately, and other than that, he's a real interesting cat. I, yeah, definitely somebody I want to get to know even more than I know because uh, even. You know, him as a, you know, on board being a higher rank and either being a lower rank other than running into him from time to time, you don't have a whole lot of personal interaction with people, with, with, with them. Like me and Kevin, you know, other than, you know, I knew him, I knew of him. He was a, you know, regular watchstander, So I've had conversations with him prior, but he was a chief. I was a junior enlisted, Uh, it was not, we were not the same. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's a whole different animal. You know, we're now, when we speak to each other, it's with mutual respect. But back then it's, you know, you're, you're my junior, you do what I need you to do. And you don't need to know anything else.
2: (laughs) That's probably how I feel talking to you guys just now. So yeah. Uh, But let's, uh, next question I will throw out to the floor. Um, Was Chad Underwood, directed to the tic-tac by the princeton radar or did he find it on commander fravor's direction alone
1: i think kevin would have to pick that up Uh, kevin what they want to know is uh did you guide him into the area or was he guided in by our flight control or was uh he told to go there by fravor like um fravor
3: fravor Fravor was low on fuel so he had to uh return to base uh, rtb back on the carrier and uh Chad Underwood was getting ready to take off um, for the next flight. And uh, Faber said, like, hey, Chad, don't don't forget to take an ATFL plane so you can film this thing. Go find him. And reportedly, Underwood replied by saying, I'm going to go find those things. Dumped in his airplane, took off, and went out there and found him. He um, came up on uh, Charlie Control, our air intercept control, and we took control of this flight and, entered and made sure he went to the right spot in the sky where he found him.
1: So basically what, the, what, what you're saying is that uh, Fravor's involvement was to the point of making sure that Chad had the at clear pod on his aircraft before he launched. Uh, and then we were the ones that guided him in, in into that. Area. And he, sure. and from there, he takes it from there to go look for the objects. We gave him relative bearing and direction. And then he goes, that goes and gets the eyes on. Awesome. Yes
3: yeah, so a forward looking infrared radar. Yeah, that at forward
2: looking infrared
3: radar.
1: Hopefully that breaks it down a little bit better for you. Yeah,
2: no, no, thank you. Uh, And the next question is along the similar path, but it was actually for Patrick, uh, for PJ. Um, It was asked on Twitter, and I think he said he would talk about it as much as he could when he came on the show. Um, So a lot of debunkers have questioned the capabilities of the FLIR and radar. Can you talk where possible on what these systems are actually capable of?
0: Well, I'm not going to talk about FLIR because I'm not a FLIR guy, but as far as... The radar on the Hawkeye, which we tracked, and I'll let Gary speak on Spy. the The way the radars work, and there's multiple radars in use. There's a Spy, there's a Hawkeye radar, the fighter radars, the Nimitz radars. All of these radars have different capabilities, different you know, different ranges, different power, different you know processors. They all work differently, and they were all giving us the same information. You know the the way the radar on the Hawkeye particularly worked is it's got inbuilt processing. It was an older radar, but a very modern processor. It's designed to look for that stuff. You know, we used to play games with the prowlers, which are jamming aircraft, which are meant to jam aircraft, jam radar specifically, and they rarely were able to jam the Hawkeye's radar because the way the radar is designed to work um, I can't elaborate on all of them because you know, a lot of that portion is classified but it's, it's designed to to not get spoofed you know and the Hawkeye radar can be spoofed if you're really good and you know what you're doing but Gary's radar you're not spoofing his radar has way too many antennas way too many I'll let Gary speak on that but you're not fooling that radar. You're not fooling that, this many different radars in use. You know, If it was just one radar, I could understand the, the whole spoofing line of thought. But when you have this many radars in use, I don't believe it. Gary, you want to speak on SPY?
1: Yeah. Um, well, SPY, I mean, it's not really one radar uh you can remember each one of those hexagonal panels you see has x amount of feed horns and each one each one of those feed horns can be moved and moved in any particular direction that we want and we can actually track multiple objects with just one panel or all of the panels all the panels combined together make a 360 degree view um, we can do things like burn through, which is where we crank up the power and we just basically focus everything on one spot. And basically it overpowers another, another radar and for effective purposes, jams it. Uh, But mostly it just uh, keeps them from being able to use their radar on us. And then we can also do things like uh, use it as a, a FCS controller, uh basically it uh we have a different type of radar dish on board called a, um it's a fire control uh it's where it's when you hear when you hear like uh on movies where they say uh you know light up the target or paint the target what they're actually talking about is using rf energy and bouncing it off of a specific target so that we can shoot a missile at it now the missile itself Interacts with the target because of how much RF is bouncing off of it. It's the most radiant RF object in the area. So it hits that target. Well, we can do that with spy. We can do that with multiple objects with spy. Spy is the most was even then the most powerful radar on the planet. Um, until we, until somebody develops quantum radars act for, for actual for practical use, and not just the uh, the prototype that you've seen on the internet, and when you actually dig into it, their prototype is very very weak. And uh, until quantum radars are in effect, there will be nothing that could spoof a spy one a spy radar.
2: Awesome. Thanks for that, Gary. And thank you, PJ. Um, Kevin, next question was for yourself. And there's a follow-up for Gary, too, on the back of it. Um, And I can ask PJ the same uh, if it's relevant. Uh, What was the most amazing thing about the footage you've seen regarding the tic-tac?
3: The most amazing thing for me is the fact that it it still survived. You know, I was actually down at the golf course. I had forgotten all about this, even though, because I, I, I didn't relate at all um, what happened to me after I retired and stuff. And I didn't relate it back to this event. Um, as it turns out, that, it, it was the cause of what, some of the stuff I was going through. And I just didn't. I, I mean, how the hell are you going to figure something like that out? I mean, you know what I mean? And I had forgotten all about it. I published my book, went on in life and forgot about this. I was down at the golf course. And I just reopened the kitchen and I was watching a golf tournament. And all of a sudden, CNN's on. I, who the hell turned on and then i saw what was playing it was that freaking video that i had in my email the very within hours of this event actually happening and it was the exact same fuzzy video and i was so freaking shocked i dropped the plate of fish and chips and uh, yelled out to my brother-in-law in the pro shop hey dave i gotta go home i'll explain later i took off went home got on the internet and uh, robert powell had already posted something he's from the scientific coalition UFOlogy. I said, hey, Robert, this is Kevin Day. Um, we've never met, but you got to call me. I'm the guy that was sitting on the radar when this happened and controlled the intercept. And that's when it all started happening for me. So for me, the, the most amazing thing about this is the fact that we're even talking about this right now. I, I never expected this to happen ever in a million years. I really didn't. Gary, you feel the same way? I mean, I I'd, I'd moved on.
1: Up, oh, Gaddy Well, I, uh, I hadn't moved on. I, I never moved on. Um, I've always had my private studies about what we saw, um, you know, for as much as that's ever going to, you know, get me. But I've always tried to figure out what they are, how they worked, what kind of propulsion that they use, what kind of, you know, how how it could be possible for those objects to have done what they could do. Um, These are the questions that have basically made my head hurt for almost 20 years now. So, yeah.
2: (laughs) And Gary, your your follow-up on that one was, um, is it possible that what Gary saw in the longer Tic Tac video was a different event to the Chad Underwood film? Uh,
1: From what I understand, no. Um, But then again, I'm also hearing that they've had that there is a possibility that they have multiple films from multiple planes that were in the air. Um, I think that he may have, been, I think the rest of the films are all gun, gun footage films from the gun cameras and not from the at pods. But uh, what I saw was basically from what I understand, he was the only one with an at pod. So it would have had to been his same footage, but there is a possibility. Uh, I didn't see like a label it didn't say underwood on on the screen or anything like that nor was I really paying attention to that part of the screen I was pretty much eyes locked on the object that was you know the focus of this video so uh, any any of the data that was running along the edges of the screen which was a lot of data I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have remembered exactly what it said so the only thing I remember is just... Uh, how numb my brain went seeing this object.
2: Next question. Again, I'll put out to whoever it's more relevant to answer, but you can all come in, of course. Did the craft seen underwater also head to Catalina Islands? And did any of you see the Tic Tacs enter the water when they reached the islands as well?
3: I I didn't. In fact, um, when this happened, it it wasn't my uh, situational awareness whatsoever. Anything went into the water. I saw this thing drop from 28,000 feet on radar down to 50 feet and just hover there. Now, others have testimony saying these objects went into the water, and I, you know what? That's their testimony, and uh, I, um, at some point, maybe some evidence will come out, the same as it's coming out now with the different radar systems and di- uh, other witnesses coming forward. Maybe that same thing will happen with the subsurface contact, too. Gary, yeah. um, well, I know a lot more the meeting with this question so go for it.
1: Alright, so so I know that the pilots reported seeing a very large object underwater and that the tic tacs were interacting with that object um, So we do have one confirmed report of at least one object being underwater uh, Direction bearing I have no idea which way it would went which way it went. I know that it wasn't there at a certain point um, and then the uh like in the in the unidentified episode where they had my interview they you know they got me on film saying you know they had a track that was over 500 knots under the water but what they cut off that uh and and so nicely edited was the fact that i literally said prior to that and after the comment that uh you know, it was, uh, it was told to me by another, another sailor, which I have yet to be able to get a hold of and verify this for a hundred percent. Um, I'd feel I've had one of the other sonar technicians that I do know and trust, uh, kind of tell me something contradictory that, um, if, there were tracks. It wasn't from the Princeton. I know that for a fact, the Princeton didn't track it underwater in any way, shape or form that if there were underwater tracks, it would have had to come from either the sub the carrier or some other, uh, ship that was in the area. Um, we did not have our sonar buoys out. We didn't have our tail in the water, which, which means that it's a, a long sonar buoy tail that, that we drag so that we can triangulate and track objects through the water. And that's the only way we would have been able to uh, have, have known what the speed of something was with sonar. So because we didn't have that tail in the water, uh, we could, the Princeton would never have been able to tell you whether it was 500 knots into the water. So if that information was accurate that I received from a uh, right now, I'm not going to I'm not going to name the source, but it was uh, it would have had to have come from one of the other ships in the battle group. Awesome. But it's, it's still unconfirmed. So, I mean, that's take it for what you will. Um, I personally believe it, but I don't, I, I have zero proof. I I'll be dead honest with that until I can get the particular person that told me about it to come out about it. It is uh, I have zero proof. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt until we have better proof.
2: No, I appreciate that. Uh listen, so the next question is one of the longer ones. It was sent over by Jazz Shaw, um who many will know from, from UFO Twitter. Um I'll I'll read through it and uh, you might want to take some notes. Uh, so some of us have recently been reviewing the original Nimitz encounter interviews with a specific focus on gaining some perspective on two in- on the two individuals who showed up to collect the data bricks after the encounter. PG, I know this is something you've talked on. Um, I asked this question as a former radar tech who served on two carriers out of San Diego back in the day. Um, I was always in CIC, so I don't shy away from the geek talk. And for those uh, I've been speaking to the guys about on the show and the listeners, this is some of the language that I was like, what? So I'm hoping the guys will understand this, and I'm sure they will. In some of those interviews, Gary Voorhees described them as two guys in suits. Uh, I'm assuming he meant jumpsuits or whatever uniform or clothes they had on underneath. The interviewer seemed to later interpret this as meaning they might be civilians, but that wasn't clear from the original answer. Jason Turner has said he doesn't remember seeing the helicopters land and didn't see them. And I'm going to butcher the surname here potentially, but is it Ryan Vigilt? Uh, originally described them as a couple of Air Force guys in plain flight suits, later saying they are plain green flight suits with no names or insignia. Doesn't say how he knew they were Air Force, but later says absolutely Air Force based on a glimpse of the uniforms he could see under the jumpsuits. With no, inf- with no offense t- intended, I've worn those jumpsuits for helo uh, trips between ships and from ship to shore. They don't show a lot of your uniform. That's an awfully tiny detail to remember 15 years later when you say that you originally didn't find the encounter all that interesting until other people came forward. Uh, wondering what level of certainty we have that they were definitely our Force and not Navy or possibly even civilian government that came on board. It doesn't take that long to fly out from Cor- Cor- uh, Coronado out to that operating area. And I would like to ask uh, what the guys think potentially about this situation. And by the way, I served on the Connie and Ranger out of North Point and was a TAD to the Kitty Hawk a couple of times. Say hi to my fellow squids for me. That was a bit of a longer question, but PJ, you might want to come in on that one, I think.
0: Yeah, I know Gary's got his own part because our experiences are the same but different. You know, I understand what the gentleman is saying. You know, when they get off the helicopter, they have rubber duckies on, they have a helmet on, they have goggles on. It covers up all that stuff. Rubber ducky being a uh, life jacket, a life preserver. Um, By the time they made it to me, They didn't have any of that stuff off or on. They just had their flight suits. A Navy flight suit is green. An Air Force flight suit is green. But the insignia, the patches, the color of the ranks, all of that is different. And we get taught that in boot camp. You know, that's how ingrained it is in you to recognize the other service's insignia. They definitely had... At least on my my end on the Nimitz, Air Force flight suits. They were lower ranking. I don't remember the length. But they were Air Force flight suits. They had Air Force patches, Air Force insignia, all of that. And being a Navy ship, you don't exactly have Air Force officers on there all the time. They stand out. You know, that's something that you remember that they were there. And where my shop was on the Nimitz. It's a hike to get there. You got to go up some and down some and around some corners. It's not a straight shot just to get to us. So if they're making it all the way over to where I am, it's something I remembered. Gary,
1: well, our our guys that came over to our ship, uh, you know, it would it could be anything from uh, you know I keep getting interviews where they talk about the men in black that came to my ship, and I say I always correct them and say, oh, you mean the men in khaki because <laughs> they, uh, you know, we're talking polo shirts, khakis, uh, we'll talk, we'll say semi, semi business formal, uh, or not formal, just business casual type of attire. Uh, I, and like PJ, I actually had to sign the chain of custody, which is actually the only thing I signed about this entire event. And that's actually why I got a little confused when I first, uh, I had to make sure that that wasn't a, uh, a, uh, non-disclosure agreement I signed. Cause I'd, I, up to that point, I literally never signed a chain of custody in my entire life because we'd never given anything out other than tapes to tech reps uh, and things of that nature, which did, didn't require a chain of custody. Uh, but uh, we did sign, I did sign a chain of custody for our, our data recording tapes. So there is at least a paper trail somewhere, just not one that we can follow.
2: Awesome, thank you. Guys, just a couple more questions, and then we can wrap up. I appreciate the time. Um, Kevin, this next one is for you. Did an an officer give you instruction to investigate the radar anomalies?
3: No, as a matter of fact, um, after this happened, I went up to Combat Information Center, CSE, and I was going to, um, I didn't know how the captain was going to react, but I was going to draft an after action message because I, w- I was the primary operational message writer for the ship. And then, you know, I'd write the message and then I would route it through the chain of command and the captain would end up releasing it. I, because of the way he was acting, I pulled him off to side, Hey, Captain Smith, um, you what's going on here? What, what are these objects? And he looked at me with a very perplexed look and said, may, I don't know, maybe i ice- a spontaneous forming ice from space," he said, and I have to admit, laughing out loud. And I'm glad he didn't get mad at me for it, but I actually laughed at him. Okay, so the next day I went, I went up to combat. I was going to um, draft a message after action report, and I didn't, I didn't know if he was going to release it or not, but I was going to try. And I went over to the um, to get my data and stuff. I went over to the RD three hundred and ninety, which recorded all of our external communications on the radios, which is our low behold. <laughs> And lo and behold, all of my voice comms were gone. You're welcome. You know, every time we key the mic, every time we key the mic on the external it gets recorded. The the date time it gives it a date time stamp and then the follow-on voice comms. Well, strangely enough, all this all the all the date time stamps are on the desk still, but all the comms were gone. Yep. And I looked at the tech. I looked at the technician and I could tell that he knew what had happened. And I'm not gonna mention his name because he hasn't come out yet. It, but he I, I just gathered instinctively that he knew, but he couldn't tell me. And I respected that. And I gave up the idea of writing a message at that point. Cause I, yeah, I, cause I you know, I had when, figured out that something very strange, something very strange had happened and it was, it was way beyond my pay grade to figure it out. So I just left it alone.
1: Cause what Kevin didn't know is while he was doing all that with the captain and trying to figure out how to report this, uh, we, I was turning over data tapes and being instructed to erase everything. <laughs>
3: Yeah. I figured all that out later. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and ironically, I didn't know that he was the one that accessed the data afterwards until ours, until we told our story separately later on. And I was saying, it's like, we were literally in the same room. The first time I heard it, we were on stage over in Laughlin, and I'm like, Oh my God, I am the asshole that erased that on him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> thanks man. Thanks.
1: Yeah. yeah. So
3: yeah, it was, hopefully- a, it, was a, it was truly a head scratcher and, um, you know, I had 18, I had, um, there was only one guy on the ship that had more sea time than me was the captain. I had 18 years of sea time on that, on Ticonderoga River class ships that, that day when that happened. And I had never experienced anything like this. You know, usually when we do exercises and operations, everything's been scripted months in advance and practiced and rehearsed and repracticed and debriefed and briefed and debriefed. This thing was so far outside of the realm of anything I'd ever seen. I just, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't do anything.
2: And Kevin, the next question again is for you. Uh, Was it yourself who guided Chad Underwood during the filming of the FLIR video or was it a colleague?
3: Restate the question. It was a little bit broken.
2: Was it yourself that guided Chad Underwood during the filming of the FLIR video or was it a colleague of yours?
3: Uh, that that FLIR video that we see on the internet is um, from Chad Underwood's flight. Is that what you're asking?
1: No, that's not quite what they're asking. What they're, what they're asking is whether you guided him in exactly to where the object was to film it. Um, he would have guided him yeah. to the to the area, like the general area where it was, and then Chad would have done his own interrogation from that point on.
3: Yeah, and you have to remember we got data links too, so he can look he can look at his systems in the aircraft and see where he's supposed to go as well from the data links.
2: Cool. Um, next question to the floor: If the Tic Tac was sending or receiving electromagnetic signals, uh, could Hawkeye discern directionally where the origin of the data was coming from? Yes.
1: Oh, sure. there you go. Yes. Yes, yeah. it can. A hundred percent. Yes. And actually if it was squawking anything just about, if it was depending on what frequency it was, a lot of the ships could have seen it and in Hawkeye specifically because, well, that's literally what it's there for.
3: And, <laughs> so. and Andy, just so you know, when, uh, in, during operations on the, on the ship, um, like the radar operator will say new track four four two five And then, everybody in a position on the air site is going to chime in with their own piece of information. And one of those guys is the electronic warfare supervisor. And he is specifically looking for that. He's looking for signals coming from that contact because, um, with his information, I'm able to tell, Hey, this is a calm air because it's got calm air radar or Hey, this is a, a Soviet MIG 25 because it's got that type of signature. So I, I use all of these little pieces of information to make the identification
1: for the problem. We and found in this case is there, we couldn't find yeah, out what was.
3: <laughs> yeah. There was no, there was no electronic emissions from these things.
1: Because I mean, uh, everybody, everybody wants, really everybody wants to look at this stuff and say, okay, well there could have been, uh, you know, A person that made a mistake well it doesn't matter if a person made a mistake the entire battle group didn't make a mistake and there's so much information that we're using to try to try to figure out exactly what these objects are is that it's it's honestly it just uh, it feels like anybody that's really trying to debunk it based off of that fact about us not being trained enough or somebody making a mistake it's, it feels like they're just trying to make a sensational accusation um, because if you, if you knew the, the way that this stuff works and that's what we're trying to relay to people is that there's no way we made a mistake that this was an unknown object. There was no way we made a mistake that it was a solid object. There's no way that we made a mistake about how fast it went or the capabilities of it. Uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're talking to you right now. Uh, if we didn't believe it, and we wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't real, then the government definitely wouldn't have said it said anything at all. They would have just been like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, believe what you want to believe," just like they have for the last sixty years. But instead, they they had they had their hand pulled this time. Yeah, you know, there was hard. It's really hard to deny the the you know the the video evidence that we we put forward. And then from there, you know, we can testify the rest. You know, that's, you know, we've got video, we've got radar, we've got, you know, audio, we've got the pilots themselves. I don't know how much more people want, uh, at this point, either get on board or get the hell out, get, have to get the hell out of the way. Yeah, that's fair.
3: Send us Yeah. Send us some money to go figure it out. more.
1: <laughs> Give us enough money. So, I'll take yeah, you with money.
3: us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We will help, help fund us and we'll go out there and we'll figure this shit out.
2: If it's you just simpler. if you just advertise ahead, a CE five experience for two and a half thousand dollars, you'll get a few people jumping on board. I'm sure as well. So
1: <laughs> I can I can flog them or you know waterboard <laughs> them or something, and they can hallucinate it if they want.
2: I, th- I think there's places I think there's places you can go for that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, so. Two more questions. Uh, Do you guys know of others? And I'm sure you will. And can you give an estimate of what sort of numbers of people have had similar experiences to yourselves that just haven't came public yet? And any details at all you
1: can share? Well, to give you an idea, since I went public with this, I've probably had just personally over at least a hundred different people of credible nature, whether they're pilots, prior military with, with top secret clearances. Um, Mostly, I'll be honest with you, mostly pilots, commercial pilots and uh, military pilots. I've gotten over a hundred emails depicting a various from back in the, you know, back in the fifties and sixties, I've got some guys that won't come public about it, but definitely wanted me to know the story and that I'm not alone, you know, in that kind of situation. Um, and I know that the other guys have all received emails from people, uh, you know, and of course I take, I take everything with a grain of salt until I kind of look into things. And I'm, but I'm appreciative of any of the stories that anybody wants to, uh, share with us. But I think, without a shadow of a doubt there's not a day that doesn't go by that a new witness is not created so i'm thinking every single day a pilot sees something a credible witness sees something that they can't explain running through the skies i think it's that common and i think that's why it permeates our society so thoroughly
3: well said gary and i agree with all
2: that awesome um Next question. Uh had a few people ask this one. I know it's something that we talked about just before the show as well. Have you got any comments on Deep Prasad and his time with UAPX?
1: Well, good kid. You should get off of uh Twitter so much and uh we don't have any other real anything other really to say about him. That's uh and there's not much to say about him. You know, he, he was with us for a while. Um, we hadn't really done anything yet before, before we separated. Uh, he didn't particularly like how we monitored his social media, so he left the company. And that's, that's our official statement as UAPX.
3: No. Yeah, the whole, the whole reason why all this started, it actually goes back to him in an article that Tim McMillan wrote. They called, they called the group, what was it, the uh, Silicon Valley UFO Hunters, right, Gary? yeah and that's when I, that's when i that's what i was the first one to reach out to deep say hey deep this is me and uh i'm the guy that you need to talk to and that's how we we kind of he kind of uh came to join us um and it's
2: simple like i said that's, happened, that's all know. we're
1: that's all we're going to talk about him yeah. we had our official yeah. statement and that's it yeah
2: i know that. exactly I'm- right And thank you for making the statement as well. I appreciate you answering that. Last question, uh, and I'm looking for an answer here from all of you. With the UAP task force now being formed and underway, are we going to find out within the next, I'll give an estimate here, two to three years, that these unidentified craft have an origin that is not of this earth, if I word it that way? Uh, I know. I'm sorry, I, I miss that uh, dog is working.
1: Basically, they uh, they want to know if uh, hopefully here soon we'll uh, will we'll find out whether these are aliens or not. <laughs> <laughs> I know Kevin wishes hopes they are. I I, I just uh, I'm scared. No matter which way it goes, uh, I'll be dead honest. All of this shit is is scares the hell out of me because I don't see a good direction that this is going into. And if I'm completely wrong and it actually goes in the direction where they're just these people that have lived here and they're just helping us. I will gladly eat crow.
2: <laughs> PJ, do uh, you want to come out on
0: that? Um, I don't know if they're going to get anywhere anytime soon. Um, they've got a lot of they've got a lot of work to do just to just to catch up to where everything is.
2: And Kevin.
3: Um man, I this this universe of ours is so freaking huge. Uh the, the the odds that we are the only living, you know, when I say we, I'm including every like even like mosquitoes and stuff, you know, like every living organism on our planet, the chances that we are the only living organism in the entire universe has to be zill. It has to be zero. In fact, the opposite it has to be true. Now that's not to say that they're even care about us or they're the ones visiting us or that's what we saw but i don't i honestly don't believe that we're alone in this universe in my mind is scientifically impossible it just is there's no freaking way that's that's going to prove true
2: no, I, I agree, Kevin, and you say this universe and that discounts the other universities that may be out there as well, and I'll, I'll leave that one just there. Um, but listen, gents, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you all. Uh, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you to all the listeners for sending in your questions as well. Uh, it's, it's a brand new format I've been trying and hopefully it'll get a better and better each time, but I think I'll struggle to get three guests of the, the same calibre. Uh, and again, PJ, special thanks to filling in so late as well for, for Sean, who couldn't make the show.
3: Hey okay. Andy, no let's problem. do this again. And Andy, let's do bring in other people on the team, like uh, Kevin Knuth, a professor from the um, university out in New York. Uh, Bruce MacBee. Uh, in other words, we, I want to get the scientists um, and the physicists uh, during the next
1: meeting. A good one. Would have is you know, in addition uh, get, get to get us Kevin Knuth on here. Uh, that's uh, yeah, he, he'd be a, he'd be a real good interview. The guy's got a, a wonderful mind. Oh,
3: my yeah. God, he's brilliant. There ain't no doubt about it. Yep.
2: Any of that Absolutely would be Absolutely brilliant. And, and listen, a lot of people want to hear from you as well, and that's um, UAPX getting started up and, and really getting going too. So we look forward to all of that. So, gents, just again, thank you very much from me. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, A, M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
0: It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk,
1: like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of... The little fucker Hubbard right at Window when I shut out the screen he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and
2: smoked a pork. Meditated
1: game of fate full on meta. Can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake, I was about to abduct you, cuz. I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was red. I called up my boys; they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, and they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and they think I should scare therapy, and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me.